Hi, I'm Father Chris Alar. Thank you for joining us here with the Marian Fathers at the National Shrine on Labor Day weekend, a beautiful day here, 68 degrees, sunny. And so we are glad that you joined us and for prayers for all those laborers out there who are taking a well-deserved break this weekend. We're so happy you joined us. Let us begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you send the Holy Spirit down upon us through the words of Scripture. Lighten our minds and our hearts to receive your word you wish to give. And we ask all this through the intercession of our Mother Mary, St. Faustina, and all the saints, and through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. As I said, I'm Father Chris Alar, and these talks are a continuing series of explaining the faith that I have been doing now for 18 straight Saturdays. We're excited, as you can see on your screen, if you would like to get my DVD, uh, three-set DVD series, uh, please pick it up on shopmercy.org where you can get the hard copy DVD or if you want to live stream it you can go to the divine mercy org slash explaining the faith or call 1-800-462-7426 to get a copy of these talks. All right. Now today, as you saw on the title slide, we're going to be talking about understanding the Bible, a Catholic book. I am super excited about this talk because as I was finishing it late last night and early this morning, I was like, wow, there's so much richness in our Catholic faith that is united to the Bible. We hear questions like, you're, you're Catholic, you're not biblical. Uh, where is that in the Bible? Where is Mary in the Bible? Where's purgatory in the Bible? Although I've already done those talks on Mary and purgatory, which you can find on our YouTube channel, Divine Mercy. We're going to summarize the Bible today and why it is a Catholic book and to help you understand it better when you read it, to be able to make better um use of the prayer and the study that you want to do with the Bible. All right, so let us begin. Now, the first slide that I want to show is what is the role of sacred scripture? All right, this is an important question that few of us ponder every day, right? All right, here's the key. As Christians, we believe that God speaks to us through both private revelation and public revelation. Now, we know the private revelation like Mary appearing at Lourdes or Fatima. We know this, or the sacred heart of Jesus to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. But public revelation is the highest form of what we believe because it's truth that comes directly from God in a public manner such as scripture. That's why Public revelation is really, really manifested in Scripture, Holy Scripture. Now, it makes sense that this public revelation comes in two ways, both written and oral. Most of what we learn in our lives is oral. Most of our conversations are oral. Um, if somebody says to you that you're grandparents came from Italy and you are Italian, 
are you going to say, well, I don't see that written down. Therefore, I don't believe it. No, you accept it as a very, uh, as a truth, a given truth. And so the oral and the written are both important. Now, sacred scripture is that divine revelation that was written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And sacred tradition is that part of divine revelation that was not written down, but still transmitted from the beginning by the mouths of the apostles and others. Now, the Bible says, though, however, Father, no need to follow tradition. This is Matthew 15, 3. But that's referring to man-made tradition. And boy, do we hear that a lot as Catholics. Um, you Catholics, I don't go for your man-made religion. Stay with us, because I'm going to tell you how to answer that. But what the Bible does say, because when it says don't follow tradition, it means man-made tradition. But what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15 is we must follow sacred apostolic tradition with sacred scripture together. And this is what our Catholic faith teaches. How do I know this? Let's show our next slide. Hold fast or hold to these traditions which you were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. This is 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Very important. Right there, the Bible tells us that you need to hold fast to that tradition. Apostolic now, not man-made, meaning coming from God through the apostles. Now let's look at our next slide. This is the church. This is the magisterium of the church. A bunch of bishops. Ah, oh, Father, that's not important. That's, that's something from ancient times and, you know, back in the 50s. You know, we don't need this anymore. Well, to ensure that we receive public revelation without corruption or misinterpretation, we need not just sacred scripture because we could misinterpret it, and not just sacred tradition, because we could possibly misunderstand it. But we need the official teaching authority of God. He gave us that teaching authority in the church called the magisterium. The Bible says that Jesus Christ founded a church with divine authority to govern in his name. Did you hear that? Let me repeat that. The Bible says Jesus Christ founded a church with divine authority to govern in his name. Don't believe me? Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, and Luke 10, verse 16. We need an authority. We must have an authority to guard and interpret any document that dictates how we are to live. You know, the U.S. government does the same thing. <clears throat> the founding of our nation is based on this. What is the written document that guides our nation? The Constitution. But what is it? Let's show our next slide. What is it? It's the, the Constitution is like our Bible. The Bible is written down to guide how we live 
And the Constitution is written down to guide how we live. Now, can you interpret the Constitution in any way you want? Could you say, well, you know what? I'm just going to go do this because I believe the Constitution says I have the right to kill somebody who um, upset me. The Constitution says I have freedom. Wait a minute. The Constitution says you have freedom to kill somebody because they upset you? Yeah, it says I have complete freedom. No, that's a misinterpretation. Well, who interprets that? You don't tell me your view. I have my view. That's why we have the Supreme Court. When the Supreme Court works the way it's supposed to, it interprets that Constitution. So this is what we have. If we didn't have a magisterium, we would interpret the Bible in 40,000 different ways, which is exactly what is happening right now in, in, in the fragmented Christian denominations. All right, let's look at our next slide. This is from 2 Peter 3.16. Peter said this of Paul. This is interesting. Peter said this of Paul. His letters, meaning St. Paul, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Are you kidding me? How come we never hear about this verse? That verse from Peter is basically saying that you're going to be distorted because these things are hard to understand. So how do we answer it? How do we understand it properly? That's why our Catholic faith, let's look at the next slide, has three legs of our Catholic stool. They are scripture, tradition, and magisterium. You know, the Jews had the same three legs of their stool. They had the scripture, they had the Torah and the Ten Commandments. They had their tradition, which was uh, came down with Moses from Mount Sinai. They had the magisterium, which was the, the law that, or the teaching authority of, of the... Um, of the Pharisees and, and the law of Moses. So now you can see how this all comes together. So here's the bottom line, everybody. The Bible is the teachings of God in the words of God. Yes, divinely inspired without error, God is the author. However, all of our Catholic church documents are also the teachings of God, but in the words of men, yes, but they're still the teachings of God, even though they are the words of men. It's like any professor in the world that teaches at the university. What does the professor say? He teaches you the true meaning from, you know, you have, I had philosophy. So my professor would talk about Aristotle. He put Aristotle in his own words so I could understand him. It was still the words of Aristotle, but explained by my professor. This is what the church does for us. They take the real words of God. They're not the words of men. They're the words of God through, I should say, through the words of man, okay, to explain it. So when I hear somebody say, or you hear somebody to say, I don't follow the teachings of men, you can say, neither do I. I'm Catholic. I follow the teachings of God explained to me by the very men Christ entrusted to teach me. 
You see, Christ gave authority to the apostles who then gave that authority and passed it down to us. And this is in the Acts of the Apostles. This is scriptural. Socrates, he entrusted Plato and he taught Plato his teachings. And he in turn then went and taught with authority to Aristotle. This is how it is handed on, and this is how we do it in our church. Now, this brings me to the most amazing scripture verse. Again, why do we never hear this? Let's go to our next slide. From 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. What you have heard from me. This is Paul's letter to Timothy, right? What you have heard from me in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's scripture telling us that men will be used to teach. This is what the Catholic faith is. This is incredible to me that we don't understand this. Let's keep going. Let's now get into the heart of it. The next slide. How do we read and understand the Bible? How do we do this? We read the Bible primarily, why? To become holy. So it helps when it is explained in ways we understand. That's what the church is for. Now, how do we read the Bible? Let's go to our next slide. First, we must read it with holiness. Our goal has to be to get closer to God. Second, we read it with faith. We believe in God's word and we believe this is it. This is truly the word of God. And then third, we have to read it with humility, recognizing our need to live what we read. Very powerful, important. Now, we must read the Bible as a whole. Reading isolated passages and taking it out of context distorts it. This is what the devil did. So when non-Catholics start spewing individual verses at you, don't get discouraged. The, 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 the whole understanding of the whole Bible as a whole, which we're going to talk about, needs to be factored in. Not just isolated ver, ver, verses. The, the devil did that. That can be distorting. We have to understand it as a whole. This is why, let's go to our next slide. Full, sola fide as an example. Faith alone. This is a perfect example of taking something out of context. How do I know this? Well, because John 3.16 basically says we'll be saved if we believe in God, period. Many people believe this to mean faith alone. You know, in fact, I was at Walmart once in North Carolina and a woman saw my Benedict cross and she came up to me and she said, you must be Catholic because, you know, the body of Christ is on that cross. And so I said, yes. And she said, how could you belong to a religion that's not of the Bible? You're not scriptural. You're not of the Bible. I said, how? She says, Romans 3.28. You don't know your scriptures. You, you Catholics don't know your scriptures. You're not of the Bible. And I said, why? She said, Romans 3.28. So I said, uh... Okay, what does Romans 3.28 say? So I didn't even know my gospel. So she, I kind of fell into her own, her own trap. But anyway, she said, you are saved by faith alone and not by works. Now, do we as Catholics believe that? That you are saved by faith alone and not by works? No, we don't. So wait a minute. 
we go against what's in the Bible? You'll be told you do. But actually, that's not what the Bible says. If you go back to what the Bible actually says, in the original language, it says you are saved by faith. We as Catholics believe that it does not say alone. Martin Luther added the word alone and not by works of the law. We believe that. When we say works, we mean works of love. And Matthew 25, like the sheep and the goats, it says, unless you love my sheep, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what we as Catholics believe. So when Luther was questioned why he added the word alone, listen to this quote. You can look it up. He said, I will it. I command it. My will is reason enough. No, that's not reason enough for me, Martin Luther, that you added it. No, it's not. You know, First uh, Corinthians, or excuse me, Corinthians 13.2, Paul says, faith without love is nothing and cannot save. James 2.24, see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's the only time faith alone appears in the Bible. James 2.24, you are not saved by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. And they mean works of love, not of the law. Matthew 20, 19, 17, Jesus says we must keep the commandments to be saved. So it's not just faith alone. Matthew 25, I said the sheep and the goats. So we approach the Bible as a bigger whole, not just isolated passages. Today, many disregard the tradition of the church and the church fathers. They think they know better. This is a lack of humility because we think we know better than 2,000 years of church teaching. I don't, and I don't think you do either. We don't. So anyway, this seems like there's a contradiction in the Bible. Um, are there contradictions in the Bible? It seems like it, doesn't it? In one place, Jesus will say one thing, and then another place he'll say another. Like in one place he says, call nobody your father, but yet the Ten Commandments say, honor your father and mother. We'll get to that. Catholics believe scriptures both inerrant meaning without error and inspired, meaning from God. So we can't have contradictions. Well, Father, how do you explain that it doesn't say this in Matthew, but it says it in Luke? Remember, two witnesses will always describe the very same accident in different ways. Neither is lying. They just saw it in different ways because one leaves something out of it doesn't mean that it didn't happen or maybe they didn't observe it that way. So we have to understand this. This is why we need the church to interpret, like a judge interprets what happened at the accident based on the case of all the witnesses. So the church takes all of the gospel and interprets it for us, just like a judge does for all the witnesses at an accident. It makes perfect sense. Well, let's get back to that. Father, call no one your father. I hear this way more than I ever thought I would since I've been doing these talks. Why are you Catholic? Call no man Father Chris. Your father, Chris Alar, why do you say father? Jesus said, call no one your father. Well, Jesus didn't mean not to say the word father or to not refer to someone in the earthly sense. My goodness, the fourth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. The rich man, in the, rich, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, he called out, Father Abraham, come dip to dip his finger in cool water. That's the parable Luke 16, 24. St. Paul calls religious leaders fathers in Acts 7, verse 2 and Acts 22, 1. 
Paul tells the Corinthians, I became your father. So a priest is a spiritual father. That's why we say father. We have many children, not biologically, but spiritually. Jesus in John 8, 56 said, quote, this is quoting Jesus, who said, call no one on earth your father. He said, quote, John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So what Jesus means there is we only call one Abba father, one creator father, one who made everything father. That's who he meant. We don't call any other God, God, but our God, Abba. All right. Hopefully that makes sense. So let's go to the next slide. Should Catholics read the Bible as literally true? I have a question for you. Should we as Catholics read the Bible as literally true? The answer, yes. Now go home tonight and cut off your right hand. Because it says if it causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, wait a minute, Father. You said to read the Bible literally. Now you're saying you're, you're, you're kind of joking around about cutting off your right hand. No, here's the thing. By literal, when we, you need to erase from your mind what you think literal means. By literal, the Bible means the intention of the author. What the message is that the author is trying to convey is true. So what is the message of that passage? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It means if there's something in your life causing you to sin, get rid of it. Is it a computer with pornography? Is it a alcohol bottle? Is it a drug? Uh, is it drugs? Is it, is it maybe even a relationship? What is it that's causing you to sin? You got to get rid of it. The literal interpretation is true. There's something causing you to sin, get rid of it. But it doesn't mean we read it as literalists, meaning you actually get a saw out and cut literally off your hand. This is not the way we read the Bible. The church tells us this is why we need the church. They explain this to us. So in the not the literalist sense, but literally it means get rid of it. If I say today I got a thousand things to do, am I lying? <laughs> Am I lying if I say I have a thousand things to do today? No, I'm not lying. I have a ton of things to do. But that doesn't mean that if you followed me around with a pen that you could probably count 1,000. That means literalist. The literal meaning is I have a lot to do. That's true. The literalist meaning means actually 1,999,000. And that's not how we read the Bible. So sometimes the writers are referring in this way. They use figures of speech, similes, metaphors, hyperbole. So we don't read it as literalists, all right? When it says God is a rock, we don't mean he's literally a clump of hardened dirt, okay? (laughs) So sometimes the writers are referring, even now let's go to historical events. Sometimes they are referring to historical events, sometimes not. What the authors intend to communicate is true and free of error, whether it has historically happened or not, like the man in the parable. Does, did, when Jesus told a parable, did he mean that that actually, that man did that, or is Jesus telling a story? The truth is the meaning. 
So let's get a little bit more to that. That's how we read the scriptures. Let's go to our next slide. This is very important. Okay, this is going to be the most technical I get on you today. So don't turn me off yet because you're thinking I'm getting Father Chris is getting too technical. Stay with me. This is just a little technical part. There's four ways we read the Bible. The first way is literally. We have to understand the Bible. I already explained the literal sense, but this is where most people stop. Just give me the meaning. But we also have the spiritual sense. Those are two, three, and four. So we have the literal sense, which is the meaning of the, of the gospel, meaning if there's something in your life causing you to sin, get rid of it. But what is the spiritual sense? Number two, three, and four. Okay, there's the allegorical, which is basically the typology, which means there's, God uses um, like, like, uh, like the Noah's Ark is going to be a symbol of coming baptism or, or um, coming of Christ is prefigured in the Old Testament to be shown in the New. We'll get to that. Then you have the moral sense and the anagogical sense. Now, don't get intimidated. I'm going to give you an example here. All right. The temple of God. Let's talk about the temple of God. Number one on that list was the literal sense. So what do I mean literally when I say the temple of God? That's what we read about in scriptures about the actual stone building, a big building where everybody went to worship. So now we know the temple of God in scripture in the literal sense. But we also have to understand it in the spiritual sense, the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. Don't get worried about the big words. I'm simply going to explain what it means. So Jesus was also talking about the temple in the allegorical sense. How? When he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it. Did he mean the stones? No. He meant himself. Right? There are simple levels of meaning in the spiritual sense. This is typology. His body is the new temple. All right? It's the meaning below the meaning, if that means anything. <laughs> now let's go to the moral sense. The moral sense of scripture is how the verse applies to you and your personal morality. So for you in the moral sense, your body is a temple. The Holy Spirit, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is 1 Corinthians 6. So we should never desecrate our body, and, and which is a temple, by getting uh, you know, overly drunk or watching impure movies or gorging and gluttony. This is abusing the temple of our bodies. This is the moral sense. So the moral sense teaches you how to live in your sense. But there's one more, the anagogical sense. And this is what it means in the bigger picture of eternity and in a heavenly sense. So that last sense is the anagogical, and that refers to the heavenly or future sense. Now, in Catholicism, we call it eschatological. Eschatology means study of the end times. So we know that after the second coming, there will be a new heavenly temple. This is Revelation 21. The old earth and all of its temples will pass away, even the churches. So this is the temple of God in the heavenly sense now. You see how they all fit together? So Augustine of Dacia captured this understanding of the four senses of Scripture. I want to summarize it. He said the literal 
or historical teaches the event or what something is, like the temple was the building. The allegorical teaches what you should believe, right? So uh, that is that the temple is the body of Christ. Morality teaches what you should do. That means don't abuse your temple, your body. And the anagogical teaches what you should be aiming for, which is the temple of God in heaven for all eternity. So Cassian wrote this, quote, let's look at another example, Jerusalem. He said the one Jerusalem can be understood in four different ways, in the historical or literal sense as the actual city itself of the Jews, in the allegorical as the church of Christ, that is the new Jerusalem, in the moral sense as the human soul, and in the anagogical sense as the heavenly city of God, which is the mother of us all, that's Galatians 4.26. This is beautiful, but the problem is a lot of fundamentalists stop at the literal, the literal sense and then tell Catholics that you're not reading the Bible the right way. Actually, we're reading it the way Christ explained it. And how do we know the church teaches us that? Jesus told us that. All right, let's keep going on this typology thing. I think it's very interesting. The catechism tells us that the New Testament lies hidden in the Old and the Old Testament is revealed in the new. For instance, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. That was typology for Christ going to be spending three days and three nights confined in the tomb. And we're going to talk about, in a, uh, towards the end of the talk, was Jonah and the whale a real event? Stay with us. Let's go to our next slide. Noah's Ark. 1 Peter 3 said, he pointed out, St. Peter pointed out, the flood of Noah anticipates Christian baptism. Look at the water there. This is the wiping away, the cleansing, the washing away of sin, just like it was in Noah's time. So typology is the notion of what preceded Christ was just a shadow of what was to come in Christ in the New Testament. This is why at the Mass we read the Old Testament first and then the New Testament. And they usually go together like when the serpent, Moses carved the serpent, right? And, and put it on the pole for people to look upon and be saved. Then the second, the gospel reading of that same day is Jesus being nailed to the cross and being lifted up on a pole to save people. It was prefigured by the serpent, bronze serpent by Moses. And now we have Christ as the real one on that pole or cross to be saving us. Now, Persons or events of the Old Testament are understood to be types of people in the New Testament. You want to know what one of my favorite ones is? I'm going to tell you this one. This is one of my all-time favorites. Let's go to our next slide. Does anybody know what this is? On the left is Isaac taking the wood that Abraham is going to sacrifice him because this was God's command. And then on the right, we have Christ. How does the Old Testament, Isaac, look at Isaac there, carrying the wood. How does he prefigure Christ? How is he a type of Christ? This is what I learned in seminary. I had some of the best seminary um, scripture study scholars, and I'm teaching you what I learned. I'm giving you basically uh, six years, two years at Franciscan and four years at Dominican House of Studies and Holy Apostles. 
of the best I learned of scripture. And I love this. All right, Isaac, let's compare Isaac as a prefigure of typology to Jesus. Isaac carried the wood for his sacrifice. That's Genesis 22. That's a type of Christ carrying his cross to Calvary, the wood. Both Jesus and Isaac took a donkey to the place where they were to be sacrificed. Two men were by their side, each of them. We know the two men by Christ's side, the good thief and the bad thief, but did you know that two servants were next to Isaac when he traveled? The journey to the mount was a three-day walk for Isaac and Abraham, and Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Abraham knew that Isaac was to be sacrificed. So to him, Isaac was as good as dead. And it broke his heart. Broke his heart. But Isaac was released from death on that third day when they got there. Like Jesus was released and resurrected on the third day as well. And it looked like he was as good as dead. So for three days traveling, Abraham's thinking, Isaac, my dear son, is as good as dead. Then <clears throat> for three days, the apostles are thinking, Jesus Christ, our dear friend, as is, for three days, as as good as dead. Then Christ resurrected, and Isaac, in a sense, was resurrected by God because it was stopped. Both Jesus and, Jesus and Isaac carried the wood on their back up a hill to be sacrificed. Again, it was God who provided the lamb to be sacrificed. In the case of Isaac, there was the lamb caught with his horns in the thicket. And in Jesus' case, he was the lamb. Again, both Jesus and Isaac <clears throat> were fastened and placed on wood to be sacrificed. For Abraham, a ram was then caught in the thicket of thorns. The head of the ram, a male lamb, was caught his head in a thicket of thorns, just like the crown of thorns placed on Jesus's head. This is incredible. Many say these things happened at the same place, Calvary. This is the tradition of the church. There are numerous other examples. That's what we call typology in the Gospels. This is amazing to me. I could give you so many of these examples, but that's just one of my favorites. All right, the Bible has a literally true meaning. Adam and Eve, Noah, the Red Sea, they all have a true meaning. But did Adam and Eve really exist? Yes. And I talk to you in a minute about some scientific research that's very interesting about Adam and Eve. I was working with Brother Mark on this. He sent me some information. We must believe it. God will, however, will always bring a greater good out of any evil. What greater good did come out of Adam and Eve? They fell. They, man, they got us in a mess. The greater good was the promise of a savior and the gift of a mother, Jesus and Mary. In the Bible, we see typology of the greater good to come. So here we see this in the flooding of Noah. It looks like a tragedy, but the greater good to come was baptism and a new creation. The Ark of Noah was a prefigure of the church. As I said before, this, this shrine here even kind of looks like an ark. It's a figure of one church that brings us baptism, the waters of baptism. 
The family of Noah, listen to this, was saved by wood and water because that's how we in the church are saved. Christ's family is saved by water and baptism and wood of the cross. Just as every kind of animal was aboard the ark, believers from all nations are aboard the church. Isn't this amazing? All right, let's go to our next slide. But is the Bible 100% historical? All right, this is where it gets a little interesting. Don't flick me off yet. We said at times that the Bible authors, now who's the author of the Bible? Maybe I didn't explain this well enough. The Holy Spirit and the men who wrote it down. Guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit, the men also were involved in the authorship. That's why they have different perspectives. But it's ultimately the authorship is God. We said at times that the Bible authors use figurative language, some more than others, because that's their own unique style. But is it possible for something to be truthful, yet not necessarily factual? Ah, no way, Father. Well, actually, that's what a parable is. A parable is an illustrative story that didn't necessarily have to have physically, literally happened in the way that it was told. When scripture says, for instance, God is my rock, that's Psalm 18.2, do we believe that God, as I said before, is really a clump of hardened dirt? No. That image, while not intended to be literalist, it's literally true. He is a solid foundation. This is God in a figurative way. He is a rock. He's strong. He's steadfast, solid. We can lean on him just like a rock. So it's true. The church insists that the Bible is inspired, meaning from God, and inerrant, meaning free of error. And what it teaches is the truth. So the point of these stories is God is faithful. He's solid. He's, he's steadfast. He's a rock. Now it's more important than trying to identify specific details. So the catechism tells us that we are free to understand every bit of the Bible as historical or not. So the meaning is true, but the parts of the text can be symbolic. And you say, oh, wait a minute, Father, there's nothing in the Bible that's symbolic. There's nothing. Well, wait a minute. Are those parables that Jesus talked about, a, a man in the vineyard uh, literally um, doing something and planting? Did it actually happen right in front of Jesus? Well, let's read what the Catechism says before you flick me off. Catechism, next slide, 337. No, I'm sorry, I don't have a slide for this. I apologize. Let me read you Catechism 337. I was supposed to make a slide. God himself created the visible world in all its richness, diversity, and order. Scripture presents the work of the creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine work concluded by the rest of the seventh day. That doesn't mean you don't, you don't have to believe that it was seven 24-hour day periods. You are free to believe that. But the church does not say, if you don't believe that it was seven 24-hour periods, that you can't get to heaven. Don't please, don't write me and criticize me. I'm simply giving you the teaching of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Again, Catechism 337. God himself, let me read it again. 
created the visible world in all its richness, diversity, and order. Man, I wish I would have made a slide for this. Scripture presents the work of the creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine work concluded by the rest on the seventh day. What the catechism means there is a day could have been a thousand years. Remember the Bible also tells us, doesn't it? A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. So don't get hung up on that. We don't want to be, you're missing the point of the Bible if that's what you're if we're too hung up on. What matters is that God did this. He created. All right. But does it, but it says that God was, for instance, um, let's talk about God in other ways. Um, well, you know what? Because of time, I think I have to skip that section. Um, you know, it talks about God with hands and feet, you know, feet in Exodus, arms in Hosea, hands in Exodus, hair in Daniel, a face in Psalm 27. These help us to picture God as the way we can picture him, to understand him. Why it's true, literally, that, for instance, God was angry with us. It says that God, um, for instance, um, was angry and was moved by emotion and he was regretted that he created the human race. So can God regret? No, he cannot be moved by emotion or a wave of regret. God doesn't change his mind or repent as man does. It makes us understand God in our terms that we can better understand. All right. Sorry, I can't explain that more. Let's go on. Don't be, however, too quick to dismiss the reality of the Bible. This is one of my favorite sections of this talk. Noah actually, did Noah's ark really happen or is that a symbol, Father Chris? Well, Noah seems to be based on a factual event since archeologists have found evidence of great floods. So let's look at our next slide. Dr. Ballard, I studied him since seventh grade when I first learned about him. Look at that um, picture there. It says, wave adventure in ocean exploration from the discovery of the Titanic to the, uh, got to read it here, to the search for Noah. All right. You know what he found? <clears throat> Dr. Ballard, who also did the Titanic, um, found flooded civilizations, living civilizations in the Black Sea near Turkey. He said that the salty Black Sea was once fresh until it was flooded all of the sudden. They dated it to around 5,000 BC, where there were towns that disappeared instantly. Fits right in time, place with Noah. This does not mean that every detail of the story of Noah's Ark had to have happened exactly like it did. There's evidence that it's scientifically a, a real event. Whether or not the giraffes entered in before the elephants or vice versa, it doesn't matter. What matters is what it prefigured and that mankind's wickedness was, was washed away and prefigured in baptism. What about Jonah? <clears throat> Jonah, it says, we always say Jonah and the whale, <clears throat> but the actual, excuse me, But the Bible actually doesn't say whale. It says big fish. And this can be explained now because there's only one type of whale that they believe could actually swallow a human. That's a sperm whale. 
and in a fish, it could be possibly a great white. Both of those are, ap are able to swallow large victims whole. Well, people argue, well, that's not true, Father, because there's no whales in the Mediterranean. You know what they found out? Recent discoveries is that there were whales in the Mediterranean and that they were hunted to extinction by the Romans. And so there could have easily been a whale in the Mediterranean Sea to swallow Jonah. The Smithsonian website itself talks about the parting of the Red Sea and says that this really could have happened. It says atmospheric effects and lake effects could have parted the Red Sea at the time Moses was there. Well, wait a minute, Father, and then you're saying it wasn't Moses. No, who controls nature and the weather? God does. So what this is showing is that it's physically possible. By God controlling the nature, he could have made it happen. Now, let's get back to Adam and Eve. We have to believe they were real people. But you know what I find is interesting? Scientific proof that says they were real people. There's a lot of confusing data out here, but I read through the information Brother Mark sent me, and here's what I gleaned out of it. And I'm going to read you a quote. If you trace back the DNA in the maternally inherited microchondria, that means the genes from your mom's side, if you trace back the DNA in the maternally inherited mitochondria within our cells, all humans have a theoretical common ancestor. This woman is known to scientists as the mitochondrial Eve. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I mean, that is just amazing. So science, the church isn't against science. People hear this all the time. Take our next slide, Galileo. People are constantly jumping. Here's a slide of Galileo. People are also jumping on the Catholic Church. Oh, they, they beat him and they, and they threw him into prison and chained him and excommunicated him and treated him horribly. And they wanted to block science. They didn't want the people to be educated. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The true story of Galileo is, first of all, when he stated that the sun the earth revolves around the sun rather than vice versa. It actually wasn't his idea. It was actually a Catholic priest named Copernicus, a Polish Catholic priest. When Galileo made this statement, the church stated that this appears to contradict scripture. You know, that part in the scripture that talks about the sun standing still and this and that. And this appeared to contradict scripture. So the church told Galileo, please, you can teach this. They never told them, no. They said, but don't teach it as scientific fact because it appears to contradict scripture. So what was the church doing? They were protecting scripture. They said it appears to contradict scripture, but they didn't fully understand scripture nor science. So when it ended up being proven that the sun does, or excuse me, the earth does revolve around the sun, Galileo, well, really Copernicus, ended up being right. But the church had a problem with Galileo it wasn't because he was teaching it, because they asked him to do it as a hypothesis, not a scientific fact. And he didn't. He disobeyed. That would be like me disobeying. And when I'm told to do one thing, I've done another. I should be dealt with. I should be disciplined. And so this is a black eye the church gets unfairly. All right. Now, let's go on on how the Bible should be read. Let's keep going here. It's actually a collection of books, separate but a one-volume library. 
Think of a one volume library. And those individual books of the Bible have all types of different genres. You got history, you got liturgical writings, you got prayers, you got poetry, you got apocalyptic prophecy, you got letters. You've got all these things. You can't expect to understand the Bible if you only tried to read it in one way as just one of those things or as a single book. And you can't expect to understand the Bible if you read it as a bunch of collection of individual books that have no relation to each other either. They are a coherent whole, a unity. The unity of scripture comes from its divine author, the Holy Spirit, and the diversity of the scriptures comes from their human authors who wrote it down in a bunch of different times, places, and events. So to treat the Bible only as divine, which some fundamentalists do, or only as human, as some scientists do, guarantees that you are not going to read the Bible accurately. Like Jesus, the Bible is both human and divine in its authorship. This is powerful. Now, let's get to some really good stuff here. Next slide. How did the Bible come about? All right. Fun stuff here. Nine out of 10 early Christians could not read. So how did they learn? Not the Bible. They learned by tradition. They couldn't learn from the Bible. They couldn't read. So they had to be told orally. So this argument that it's not written in the Bible would have fallen apart in the first several centuries. What did, would you do with all the people who couldn't read? It was passed on orally, tradition. Where did they learn their faith and the scriptures? The mass. The Bible was created to be read at the mass. Whoa, Father, what are you saying? Stay with me. The mass came before the Bible. Christ instituted the mass <clears throat> the night before he died. Not a word of New Testament scripture had been written for decades at that point. In fact, most New Testament <clears throat> consists of letters. And who did write those, did Paul write those letters to? The churches. The, the letters that are in the Bible were written to churches. It was for their purpose, for use of that church. The Bible is meant to be used for the churches in worship and not just memorized and individual scripture passages quoted. There is most scripture at the mass. Do you know there's more scripture in one weekday Catholic mass than any Sunday Protestant service, period? The early church used scripture for worship and only secondarily for study. This is interesting. That's why when the priest gives a homily in the Catholic church, we different from a, a sermon and a homily are different. In non-Catholic faiths, they do sermons, which are talks about any general topic. But in the Catholic church, we give homilies, which means we talk about a specific scripture passage of the day. Non-Catholic faiths don't have particular scripture passages for a given day like we do. This is systematic. It's beautiful. It's how we learn our faith through the Bible. And that is truly Catholic. So the priest gives a homily on non-Catholics, gives sermons. But let's go to our, our, our next slide. 
Who determined what books went into the Bible? All right. Who determined what books went into the Bible? This is a critical question. If you only stay with me for one more slide, stay with this one, even though they get better. But who determined it? Nowhere in the Bible does it say what books belong in the Bible. God never gave a table of contents. He never said you need to include the, the book of Revelation. You need to put the gospel of James, but not the gospel of Thomas or, or gospel of Peter. How come they didn't make it in the Bible? During that time of the early centuries, we had the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Mary. How come they didn't make it into the Bible? Who said that they that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do, but not Thomas and, 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 and Peter and Mary's Gospels? Who, who made that determination? All right. When I was in North Carolina, I had a good friend, um, good man, fallen away Catholic, and I had um, behind me a crucifix on my wall. And in my crucifix on my wall, um, I would um, have my business meetings and sometimes my employees would come in. And one day, my good employee, Ed, came in and he's sitting in front of me and he's looking up at the crucifix and, and, and finally he just breaks down. He says, Chris, can I close your door? And I said, okay. And he closes the door. He says, why do you crazy Catholics have all these statues and, and this image of Christ? I said, well, because Christ died for us. And when we go to mass, you see the crucifix because you're there at Calvary as he's paying our debt to sin which is his death. He said, Chris, all you need is this. And he held up the Bible. And he says, this is all you need. You don't need anything else. You don't need four walls of your church. You don't need the magisterium. You don't need tradition, even though the Bible says we both need oral and written tradition. And the Bible says the church is the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. He said, you don't need those things. All you need is scripture. I said, okay. And he held up the book. God bless him. He meant well. I, I, I'm not offended. And he, he, he handles the book and he says, Chris, this is all you need. He says, you don't need anything else. I said, Ed, do you believe what's in that Bible? He says, of course. I said, do you believe everything that's written, every word? Yeah. Do you believe it's true? Yeah. Do you believe it comes from God? Yeah. Well, who do you think wrote it down? Man, right. But Ed... If you believe everything in that book, which you said you do, do you believe the authority from which it came? He said, yes. I said, congratulations, Ed. You accept the authority of the Catholic Church because that Bible you hold in your hand was put together at the councils of Carthage and Hippo in 393 and 397 A.D., that's when the Bible was canonized, meaning that of all the scriptures floating around out there, this one is inspired, this one is inspired, and this one is inspired of the Holy Spirit. And they put them together in the Bible we have known today. And people say, this is crazy. This is the truth. All right. You can't, I said, Bob, uh, Ed, you cannot accept the Bible and reject the authority of the Catholic Church because it is the Catholic Church from which that Bible came. He was speechless. You know, I also um, tried, I was one of the first guys in North Carolina ever to try online dating. Back when I moved down to North Carolina, I started my business 
This is way prior to priest days or even thought of priest days. And um, I was working seven days a week till midnight. I never had a social life. And then one day I realized, gee, maybe I ought to try this new thing called online dating. Never, never tried it. Back then there was all the seven girls on the internet. And so I met this girl and we talked and emailed and I didn't want to embarrass her by saying, I'll pick you up. I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. So we agreed to meet at this restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina. And what are the two things they tell you never to talk about on a first date? Yeah, religion and politics, right? So sure enough, I'm eating and here it comes. So she asks, what religion are you? And I mumbled through my spaghetti, Catholic? She goes, <gasps> she goes, how, how could you belong to a religion that burned Bibles, chained them to rocks so nobody could have them and put them into Latin so nobody could read them? You know what my reaction was? <gasps> we did? <laughs> I didn't know my own faith. Thank God you are joining me today to learn your faith. Did the Catholic Church burn Bibles, chain them to rocks, and put them into Latin? You bet we did. But you got to ask why. The Bibles that the Catholic Church burned were heretical Bibles, ones not inspired by the Holy Spirit, all those other Bibles I told you about. They call them the apocryphal Bibles, not of the Holy Spirit. They're not necessarily evil, but these other Gospels are not of the Holy Spirit, so the church burned them. What do you do when you find counterfeit money? You burn it. You burn counterfeit money. That's what the church did. They protected the real money, the real, the real Bible. What about they chained them to rocks? Yeah, they did chain them to rocks because back then it took three years to copy one Bible. And if you would have put it out in the public square, it would have been gone in an hour because it would have had a lot of value on the black market. And so they chained it to rocks so everybody could read it and not take it. I always say, you all remember the days of the phone booth? What was chained to the phone booth? The yellow pages, not so that I could walk off with them, but so that I didn't walk off with them so that the next guy could have it. That's good for the church to do. I always say, remember the pen at the bank? It's chained to the desk. Not because they say you can't use the pen. They chain it to the desk so nobody walks off with the pen. And what about they put it into Latin? Yes, the church put it into Latin because then, no, at that time still, more people read and wrote Latin than any other language. So putting it into Latin, the Bible was much greatly increased in its expanse and reach. This is amazing, but nobody ever talks about this. All right, let's keep going. All right, then she said, how could you belong to religion that added books to the Bible? What's she talking about? All right. Catholics and non-Catholic Christians have the same New Testament, 27 books with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we differ in our Old Testament by seven books. We Catholics have seven additional books, Maccabees, Sirach, Wisdom, Tobit. These are additional books that people blame the Catholics for adding those books. No, no, no. Martin Luther took them out. Here's the thing. Luther claimed these seven books were not in the original Hebrew. Actually, now they're finding they were in the original Hebrew through the Dead Sea Scrolls. But anyway, Hebrew was the original language of the Old Testament scriptures, and it was translated into Greek about 200 years before Christ. They called it the Septuagint. 
This was what Christ and his disciples and the New Testament writers worked from. Christian churches, or the, the Catholic Church, used the Septuagint from the very beginning and gave us our Catholic Bible. However, in the third century, at the Council of Jamni, I think it was, rabbinic, rabbinic Jews rejected those seven books that were found in the Septuagint. But remember, these were not Christians. These were anti-Christians. Martin Luther went with their decision of the rabbinic Jews and rejected Christ, or excuse me, who rejected Christ? I'm sorry. He went with the rabbinic, Jew, rabbinic Jews who rejected Christ and persecuted the church. So here's the point, everyone. If your Bible has those seven books, like our Catholic Bible does, then you followed Jesus and the early church. If your Bible does not have those seven books, which most non-Catholic Bibles don't, you follow the non-Christian rabbis who rejected Christ because that's who Martin Luther followed. So these deuterocanonical books are part of church tradition and of our faith. And most people don't know that. So don't say that we added books to the Bible. No. All right. I want to go on here to a quote. Let's go to the next slide. This is a powerful quote. This is from Martin Luther. He said, we concede as we must that so much of what they say, who is they, Catholics, is true. That the papacy has God's word and the office of the apostles. And that we have received holy scripture, baptism, the sacrament, and the pulpit from them. What would we know if the, of these if it were not for them? Meaning the Catholics. Martin Luther says right there, scripture comes from the Catholics. So the next time you're said you're not of a Catholic religion, say if you are of a non-Catholic religion, you follow Martin Luther, Martin Luther said the Bible comes from the Catholics. I just read you the quote. All right, so then let's go to Sola Scriptura. Next slide. The next slide is the famous question. Sola Scriptura, question mark, meaning Bible only? Well, the Bible doesn't say Sola Scriptura. The Bible says it is not the only authority. How do I know this? It says it in the last chapter of John. The last chapter of John says Scripture is necessary but not sufficient, meaning there's more to, like, to scripture, like tradition and the magisterium. How do we know this? John 21, 25. Let me quote. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. All right, John is saying here that there are things that Jesus said and did that were not written down. Does that make them unimportant? Do you really believe that Jesus at the end would say, you know what, okay, I did all these things during my life, which we just read. If they were all to be written down, all the books couldn't contain them. But do you really think Jesus would say, but those things aren't important? 
No, they are important. That's what tradition of the Catholic Church is. Sola Scriptura is not in the Bible. It was basically unknown for 1,500 years. So Jesus never promised us a book. But next slide, what did he promise us? A church. This is my famous St. Um, Albertus in Detroit. Beautiful downtown churches. 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. It tells us what makes up the Bible. That's 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. As I said, we need an authority to guard and interpret any document that determines how we are to live. Our document is the Bible. The church interprets it, the magisterium. It is from the Catholic Church that all other Christians have a Bible at all. So we are scriptural. The Bible is a Catholic book. The New Testament was written, copied, collected, and preserved by the Catholic Church. To trust in the Bible is to trust in the authority of the Catholic Church. If you believe in the Bible, you can't reject the authority of the Catholic Church. They canonize the Bible. To reject that authority that Christ gave is to reject Christ himself. So if you reject the authority from which the Bible came, the Bible came from the Catholic Church, you are rejecting Christ's authority who established that. So like evangelicals, Catholics use, we use scripture to determine doctrine and moral principles. This is true. The difference is that the Catholic layperson or even the pastor, me, doesn't do so on our own. As Paul gave Timothy the authority to, quote, rightly divide the word of truth, that's 2 Timothy 2.15, so the Catholics believe their bishops inherited that authority as the apostles taught them. Therefore, it is the bishops through apostolic succession Christ ordained the first bishops, the apostles. Then they laid their hands on the next bishops and made them bishops. Then those bishops laid their hands on and made the next bishops. There's an unbroken line since the time of Christ going all the way down to every Catholic uh, clergy today, despite their brokenness. Those are the ones who interpret the Bible. Any official Catholic teaching or document is always based on scripture. Yes, we are scriptural. This is the teachings of God, remember, only written by man and explained by man. All right, let's go into the versions of the Bible now. Here are the Catholic versions. You know, don't get confused here because a lot of people say, Father, what version of the Bible should I buy? The version of the Bible that you should buy is probably one of these because they keep those seven books plus part of Daniel and Esther that were taken out. But they are the RSVCE, that stands for Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. So the RSVCE is probably the best. Then you have the NAB, the New American Bible. That's what's used to be read at the Mass. But there's some problems with some footnotes on that one. You have the New Jerusalem Bible. You have the Navarre Bible. These are very, very good Catholic Bibles to get. Now remember, the chapters and verses, those were all invented. Those were not part of the original writings. Those were invented in the 1200s by, guess what, a cardinal, Cardinal Stephen Langton. All right, now we want to finish. I want to finish here today. How do we summarize the Bible? 
The Bible, I thought of this long and hard this week as I was working on this talk. I had at one point, I was going to explain to you a little sentence or two for every book in the Bible, and I can still do that at a later talk. I was going to explain to you salvation history, but I think the best way to explain the Bible to you are the covenants. The covenants. What is a covenant? This is the whole basis of the Bible. All right. Now, before I show the next slide, what is a covenant? A covenant is, is like a contract, but a contract usually exchanges property or goods or services. Covenants exchange persons. So when people enter into a covenant, they are basically saying, I am yours and you are mine. So God uses the covenant to enter into a relationship with us. When you establish a covenant, you establish a family bond. And this is what happened in God's Old Testament covenants. He is fathering his people. Operating throughout the whole of Scripture are God's efforts at attaining the ultimate end of his creation. What is the ultimate goal? Divine sonship of us. Remember the catechism, Baltimore Catechism, why were you created to know God, love him, and serve him in this world and be happy with him forever in the next? We do that as sons of God. That's why after the fall in the garden and Christ came and redeemed us, we were made adopted sons of God, sons and daughters. This is the goal of all the covenants. In fact, the goal of creation, to know God as Father, Abba. All right, so let's show this first slide. Here are the covenants. I borrowed this from um, um, Ascension Press. They have a um, adventure, great adventure Bible series, which is fabulous if you ever get a chance to, to see it. Let's go through these covenants. All right, you have the covenant sign and who the covenant was with and what it was about. All right, we have the Adam covenant or the Edenic from the Garden of Eden. That was basically one holy couple. And I think we have it up on the screen. Do we have the slide up on the screen? Yep. Yep. Okay. So um, we're trying to expand it, trying to make it a little bigger. Um, then we have Noah. Noah was a covenant based on one holy family. So now God went from a couple to making himself known to a family. Then through Abraham's covenant, he made himself known to a tribe. These were the Israelites. So he brought himself to be known to a tribe. Then God brought himself known through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, to a nation. Now we have the United Nation of Israel. Then he made himself known through the Davidic kingdom to an entire, excuse me, through the Davidic covenant to an entire kingdom. Now all of those are fulfilled in the final and great covenant of Christ, the new covenant, where God makes himself known through one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic meaning universal. This is incredible. This summarizes everything for us. And so this is a beautiful little summary through my friends at Ascension Press in the Great Adventure Bible series. Now I want to explain each of these a little bit. 
and then we're going to be done today. The Edenic Covenant. What is the Edenic Covenant? This was the covenant of Adam that applies to all humanity. So let's look at our next slide. The covenants of God, the Edenic Covenant. All right. It can be found in Genesis chapter 1. And there, God gives mankind the mandate to procreate, and he gives, and God gives mankind dominion over all the earth and the animals. So we know through this covenant that we have dominion over the earth. In it, we also experience the covenant of marriage. Adam and Eve, the first married couple, right? Let's go to our next covenant. Noah, the covenant of Noah. In this covenant, God promises never to destroy the earth again by water, by flood. And he created the rainbow as the sign of the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on earth. Sadly, our symbol of the rainbow has been hijacked by some special agendas, let's say. It's really a meaning of God's covenant with Noah. It's not to have an immoral support meaning. It is a covenant with God. Noah and his descendants were required to return to never shed human blood murder ever again because mankind was made in the image of God. Now, here's what's interesting. So mankind was forbidden to consume meat with blood in it. This is where the koshered meat comes from. The blood had to be drained from the animal before consuming it because their covenant was to never murder and blood is the life. So it's interesting, isn't it? All right, let's go to the next covenant of Abraham. In the Abrahamic covenant, to make Abraham a great nation, this was the covenant, and bless Abraham and to make his name great to spread his progeny as far as the stars of the sky or the sands of the seashore, to bless those who blessed him and cursed those who cursed him, basically meaning God's people will be blessed and their enemies cursed, to give Abraham's descendants all the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates, which is the promised land. So now the promised land was given to make Abraham the father of many nations and many descendants and to get the whole land of Canaan. Now, circumcision was the sign of this covenant. This is also interesting. Circumcision was the permanent sign of this covenant with Abraham and his offspring. All right, why? All right, this is interesting. Let me read you from one of the scholars. Covenants in biblical times were often sealed by severing an animal in half, meaning the party who breaks the covenant will suffer the same fate. So in Hebrew, a, to seal, excuse me, in Hebrew, to seal a covenant literally translates to meaning to cut. So it is presumed by Jewish scholars that the removal of the foreskin on the male penis symbolically represents the sealing of the covenant. That's what circumcision is. Very interesting. That's how important it was to them. Let's go to the next covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of Moses. 
This is found in Exodus and Deuteronomy. God promises here to make the Israelites his treasured possession among all people of priests and a holy nation. So now we're talking a nation. If they follow God's commandments, as part of the terms, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. The blood of the sacrificial oxen is then sprinkled on the altar and on the people to, spray, to seal the covenant. So now you went from circumcision to seal the covenant to sprinkling of the blood. That's why they sprinkled the blood on the doorposts, right, to protect from the angel of death. Beyond its central religious purpose, the Mosaic covenant was also, guess what, political. Because now you're dealing with a nation. Now God enters into politics. <laughs> so don't necessarily criticize your priest. Yes, we cannot support particular politicians or, or political parties, but we are to preach on social justice and other issues that are political. Basically here, God established Israel as a holy nation, as God's special possession. This was the covenant of Moses. Now, let's go to the last one before the coming of Christ. Next slide, the Davidic covenant. Here was a royal covenant. Now we mean royal. What is that? King. The Davidic kingdom. The royal covenant was made with David. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It promised to establish his dynasty or kingdom forever. This covenant establishes David and his descendants as the kings of the united monarchy of Israel. This is why Jesus said he came. I came to unite the tribes of Israel. For the Jews, the Messiah is believed to be a future Jewish king. Well, that's who Jesus was. From the Davidic line, that's who Jesus was. Who will be anointed with oil. Remember, Jesus was in the scriptures by the woman. Greater, or to gather, I'm sorry, the Jews back into the land of Israel. That's what Jesus did. He said, I came to the house of Israel to bring them together and usher in an era with a male heir to rule the Jewish people during this age. That's what we have fulfilled in Christ. So David kept this or built this kingdom and Christ fulfilled it in the line of David. Remember in the line of David, the Davidic kingdom, who was the queen? The queen was the mother, not the wife of the king, the mother of the king, Mary. And we'll be finishing with her in a second. And David kept the tablets. Let's look at our next slide in the tablets of the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. And this became the symbol of the Israelite people. And God's presence is with his people. Thus, when King David wanted to establish Jerusalem as the capital city, he brought the Ark of the Covenant there. Now, this is interesting. All of this has been fulfilled now. See our next slide by God's new covenant. Look at right there. We'll now write it on the law on your hearts. Look at that slide. That is beautiful. And let's look at our next slide. That's the new covenant. The death of Christ shedding the blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. We read those words in scripture. This is the new covenant. So let me explain it. We Catholics believe that the new covenant 
was instituted at the Last Supper as part of the Eucharist, which in the Gospel of John includes the new commandment of love, a connection between the blood of Christ and the new covenant, which I just showed you, is the new covenant, or the new testament, I'm sorry, which I just showed you is the new testament. And in it, it says, quote, the cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Christians see Jesus as the mediator of this covenant and that his blood shed at the crucifixion is required blood of the covenant, replacing the animal blood. This new covenant is associated with the word testament. This is interesting. We don't know this. This is why we call it the New Testament, kind of like in the sense of a will and last testament, right? In the sense of a will left after the death of a person. So Christ is leaving this as his testament after his death, like a will and testament. The instructions for the inheritance that you are to receive. Isn't this amazing? We only think of a will as, oh man, give me my inheritance. You're given the ultimate inheritance in what Christ just willed you in the Last Supper through the covenant of his blood. Christ has fulfilled now all the other covenants. The kingdom is now, as that chart showed you, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which is now the eternal kingdom of God here on earth. Oh, I don't need that church, Father. I'm not about man-made religion. I'm spiritual. I'm not into man-made religion, really? Or I'm not into organized religion, really? This isn't a man-made religion. Christ made this religion. Well, I'm not into uh, the hierarchy. I'm not into organized religion, really? Jesus organized religion. He established the College of Bishops. He established the throne of the Pope and placed Peter upon it. He gave the authority to the bishops, the first bishops who were the apostles, ordained them and gave them the authority to ordain the next bishops. He established the magisterium, who using scripture and tradition, teach us and guide us as we were commanded in those scripture passages I gave you at the beginning of this talk. The scripture passage that says, entrust the men that I have entrusted to teach you. And then the other passage, it says, hold fast to the traditions that I teach you, both oral and written, both. This is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the new covenant of Christ that has fulfilled all the old covenants. All right, we would be remiss if we didn't finish with our blessed mother, Mary. Let's put it up there now. The reason I'm not doing a whole thing on Mary, please tune in. I have my talk on Mary where I explain all of the scripture. Where is Mary in the Bible? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I have all that on my Explaining the Faith series. If you go to our YouTube channel called Divine Mercy, and in that YouTube channel called Divine Mercy, there's a playlist that says Explaining the Faith. All my talks are on there, including purgatory, where that's in the Bible, and Mary. So I'm only going to say a few words, but I'm not neglecting our Blessed Mother. I'm a Marian. I don't want to do that. She's in that other video. Uh, or at least, I'm sorry, she's everywhere, but my explanation is. Now, uh, regarding Mary, many of the events and figures of the Old Testament foreshadow Christ and his church, but so does they foreshadow Mary. We see Mary in Old Testament accounts of Israel, the daughter Zion, in the Ark of the Covenant. Mary was the most faithful of all the daughters of Israel. 
the woman who would actually bear God within her womb. So we could see she was truly the typology as the new Ark of the Covenant. She, the Ark of the Covenant hold the, held the old law, she holds the new law. In fact, the whole first chapter of Luke, especially verses 26 to 56, is the Hail Mary. See my other talks, as I said, on Mary and other things in the Bible. All right, last page. <clears throat> the Bible, we want to summarize the Bible here, is discipleship. And Mary was the ultimate disciple to follow her example. And remember what the discipleship was in the Bible? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. That's the message of discipleship in the Bible. We need to know that. But there's more. There's more. John 13, 34 tells us, this is how all will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. All right, so to summarize, let's go to our, our, our slide, the story of the Bible. You want to know the whole story of the Bible? I'm going to summarize it for you in three minutes and we're done. The Bible is a love story. The Bible is about a groom, God, calling back his wayward bride, us, us, the church. That is seen in the Bible. The Bible starts with a wedding in the garden and ends with a wedding in the book of Revelation, the feast of the lamb. This is where you as a bride come up and receive your groom at the mass. The book of Revelation is about the mass. I do a whole nother talk on that as well on my talks called Explaining the Faith called Holy Communion. Please watch that one. In summary, the Bible brings us a message of life-giving, self-sacrificing sonship, familial love. We came from God. <clears throat> I did this in the talks. We came from God. We will return to God. So we came from the love of the Father, and now he wants us to return back to him through our own love. We came from his love, but he wants us to come back through his love. It's kind of like Augustine. God created you without you, but he won't save you without you. It's the same thing here. But we do. How do we know God loves us? So that we can love him with trust. The entire Bible and the diary of St. Faustina tell us so. We can know the Father by the Son and the Son by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit by Mary. And I know I'm running out of time here, but you know what? That's how you know the meaning of the Bible. God wants to reveal himself as Abba, Father, so that we will love and trust him. But how does he do it? He did it. How do we know the Father? Through the Son. God the Father sent his Son to reveal himself. Jesus said, when you look upon me, you've looked upon the Father. So how do we know the Father? We know him through the Son. Now, how do we know the Son? Jesus said, you can't know me but through the gift of the Spirit. So we know the Son through the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Pentecost, remember, the apostles hid in fear in the room until Jesus sent the, or to God sent the Holy Spirit. Then they were in flames, so they knew who Jesus was fully after the Holy Spirit came and enlightened them. Now, how do we know the Holy Spirit? Through his spouse, Mary. She's, she's a quasi-incarnation of the Holy Spirit, which means Saint, um, uh, Maximilian Colby told us she's not actually the Holy Spirit walking around in flesh and blood, but she's a quasi-incarnation. She embodies everything the Holy Spirit, her spouse, was. So if you want to know who the Holy Spirit was, go to Mary. And if you want to get back to God the Father, come back the same way from which you came. Go to Mary. She'll 
she'll show you the Holy Spirit or spouse. The Holy Spirit will enlighten you to understand who Christ is. And Christ is the door to the Father. This is what we do at the Mass. The Holy Spirit, by His power, is taking us through the sacrifice of the Son back to God the Father at the Mass. This is what it is. This is the whole message of the Bible. God revealing himself to us so that we will know he is Father, that we will trust him. Father Mike Gately's book, 33 Days to Greater Glory, is all about this. The revealing of himself so that we can know him, love him, and trust him. All right, we need to trust him so that we'll return to him. And after the fall, since we strayed, God gives us tools to help us. He gave us the gift of a mother. Here's one of us. We're broken, skittish, scared creatures, but he gave us one of us, a creature, Mary, to help bridge that gap so that we wouldn't be afraid of the Father. Who do we run to normally? Our mother. And so when we strayed, he gave us the gift of a, of a savior and the promise of a mother. All right? And in it's a faith of, in love and having trust that we are meant to be members of God's family and that he loves us as Father, as Abba. So what is the essential message of scripture? You can boil it down to one thing. Jesus Christ is Lord, so trust him. That's the message of the diary. That's the message of the Bible. And our last slide, finally, the divine mercy image. That is why he demanded on the divine mercy image, it be put, Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus is the face of the Father's mercy. So the central message of scripture is divine mercy. Pope Benedict told us this. Mercy is the central nucleus of the gospel message. So if we receive the mercy of God and then we live it, then we give it to everybody we meet, we will have eternal life. And we do that by trusting him. You don't receive anything from somebody you don't trust. So it starts with trust. So when you trust him, you'll receive his love. Then you can love him back and others as your neighbor, as yourself. This is forming you into another Christ. Christ received the love of the Father and gave it to mankind. Be formed like Jesus in the womb of Mary into another Christ. So when you love like him, then you are merciful like him. That is what mercy is, love put into action. The love of God, when it's put into action, is mercy. And when your love is put into love of God and your neighbor, that is mercy. And you have got the message of the gospel and you have found salvation. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Again, I'm so sorry I went long, but God bless all of you. Keep staying with us. I'm going to start. We're answering a lot of questions and getting topics. We'll try to shorten up each week. So we hope that you'll stay with us. And please pray for us. We'll pray for you. Um, you can find all of this again on my DVD. I uh, talked a lot about this on my DVD series called Explaining the Faith that you would like to get CDs at shopmercy.org or 1-800-4-MARIAN or live streamed at the divinemercy.org slash explaining the faith. God bless you. We can't wait to see you next week. It's a beautiful day here. May the Lord be with you. And through the intercession of St. Faustina, Mary, and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why be a Marian helper? Because we Marian fathers celebrate a mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits 
of all the Miriam priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Miriam priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we say a mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves, but we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. And we members of the Marian Fathers will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the divine mercy. Remember Jesus told St. Faustina that the chaplet of divine mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the Shrine of Divine Mercy, we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you wanna learn more how to be a Marian helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.